Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I want to thank my latest Patreon subscriber, Bedwin, for his support and all my other Patreon subscribers for their continued support. This podcast would struggle to continue without them, and my Patreon page has become a great place to learn about and to chat about all aspects of conducting. There'll be more about my Patreon page later on in this episode. Today, I conduct a conversation with a Dutch conductor who went through the famous German Kapellmeister system, working at three different opera houses, including 10 years as general music director in Koblenz. Since 2018, he has been the principal guest conductor of the WDR Funkhouse Orchestra in Cologne. It's a great pleasure to welcome Enrico Delembois. Enrico, uh, wonderful to see you again and to chat with you again. How are you? Good afternoon. Hi, I'm fine. Thank you, Michael. Good. I say again because we worked together on some music for the VDR Funkhouse Orchestra. You were doing some pre-rehearsals for me, and we had a good chat over Zoom very late one night when my, my plane had taken ages to get into Dusseldorf. But it, it's very nice to see you again, and thank you for that work. Oh, well, you're very welcome. Great yeah. to see you again. Um, regular listeners will know I go right back to the beginning, and I read that you were born in Germany, but you're actually Dutch. Um, right. And yeah. I also believe that your father was musical and was a tenor. So how did music first enter your life other than hearing your father sing? And, and what was your first instrument? It was all around in my life. It was just normal that we would have uh, daddy singing at home or having some old disc running in the background of the roles he was studying at that time. Yeah. And actually, yeah, I, I cannot exactly remember, but I know that at, at an early age, I started uh going to the piano lessons because I liked to play the piano. And then they said, well, would you like to play a little bit more and find a little bit more out of this instrument? And I just, yeah, I said yes. And I, But to be honest, I couldn't read notes at that time. And I was not able to read notes for quite a long time because I was used to playing on the ears. Huh. So I would ask my teacher to play it twice for me. And then my dad would play it a little bit for me. And then I would know what to do. And I was ready for the next lesson. And that was quite... <laughs> A few years that it went like that, and then yeah. they found out he is very bad at reading notes. And then uh, we uh, had to improve my skills on that as well. And then, yeah, that and then things got more easier, but it took me a long time to realize that. There, there comes a point, doesn't there, when you know, um, yeah, I mean, in the in the UK, the system is that we take graded exams, there are eight grades, and between mm -hmm. grade five and grade six, you have to take a theory exam. You cannot do grade six until you've done your grade five theory. And there comes a point when you have to sit down with somebody and talk about key signatures and rhythms and, you know, and figured bass and all that sort of stuff. And, and it's necessary. It's fantastic. Once you get this alphabet, it's kind of a new alphabet, I would say. You're able to speak a lot of new languages. And uh, But at the age of eight or nine, you think, well, I don't need that because music goes all via the ears. <laughs> yes. That's what you, which is true, of course, for for a lot of listeners but uh, if you want to do this profession you need to learn this language and that's yeah. what i realized at that point and was very happy to accept that and, and learn it and yeah by the i think by the eight when i was eight the age of eight i i said i want to become a conductor so yeah oh that wow that yeah. soon yeah that's very early because it was everything around in my life and my dad was singing at the Staatsiat in wiesbaden which is in the middle of germany and he was singing the role of Nime, which is one of the little uh, Nibelungen in, the, in this uh, tetralogy of, of, of Wagner. And I was so fascinated uh, actually being a, a, a figurant, how do you call it, an extra in the, in the, yes. uh, on stage in this third theme. But I was more fascinated by this guy in the pit who was waving his arms and dividing air and guiding these hundred people through this uh, complex work. And yeah. There was a point when I said, well, that's awesome, Daddy. I want to do that. Yeah. And what was his response as a singer He's, or as a musician? Well, he, he responded as a musician and a father uh, in a great manner. He said, if you like that, then I will not uh, forbid you to do that, but I will help you where I can. But you, you realize that you have to do a lot on your own. That's what he said. Mm. And be uh, aware of that. It This is... He said this to me as an eight-year-old. Well, the business is not always like this. I mean, you're mainly surrounded by idiots, but you have a few nice people around you as well. 
And oh. always remember that, my son. <laughs> now, now when I'm sometimes in very problematic productions, I remember his words. I get a smile and kind of try to solve the problems which are which I'm dealing with at that time. So, oh, that's yeah. a wonderful attitude, and, and and to have it told to you so early is wonderful, isn't it? I mean, you know, there's yeah. a, well, I've, we've got a few family mottos here that are very unrepeatable on the, on the podcast, um, <laughs> explicit words in. Um, but yeah, to learn that so early on and to realise that it's A, it's hard work, yeah. B, you're going to be alone a lot and it's a lonely profession, but C, you know, it won't always go as you think it is. And there there are a lot of idiots and people around who are there to, you know, scupper yeah, you your to- life. You have to deal with that. And, but if you believe in this profession and if you believe in making music and giving your best uh, at that with with the, the, the best preparation you could do, the best you, energy you can give at that, at that time when you're there, well, then it can be a, a great profession and uh, you don't want to do anything else. No, no, it, I agree. Well, my journey is slightly different, but um, you go to the Conservatory of Maastricht and I read that you did piano and conducting. Did you Were they running side by side? Um, well, it was just because I was still very, very uh, usable at the piano, so to say. I was uh, accompanying a lot of uh, male and mixed choirs here. I was playing the mess in, in the church and stuff like that. So I didn't want to give up all this uh, income already that I had when I was 16, 17, 18. So after uh, middle school, it was for me kind of logical to go to the uh, next conservatory, the, the, the next stop, next by. And it was just around the corner, so to say. But I was lucky that I had a very good teacher there for piano and for conducting, which oh. I realize now. But at that time, it was just a choice. OK, let's pick the next school next door. Yeah. Yeah. And I went there because uh, I, I was already uh, at that time uh, in a relationship with my uh, today's wife, so to say. So uh, it, it it was all it, it was all logical for me to stay where I was and just learn this profession. And from there on, I know, OK, I would have to leave the Netherlands because there is not that much possibility here for young conductors to start and to develop. But uh, to to be honest, afterwards, regarded from now, I, I was uh, very uh, very lucky to have made that choice and to have met those people that taught me there. I, I was going to move on, but you you've reminded me of at least two Dutch conductors, uh, Jack van Steen and Anthony Hermes, who said pretty much yeah. the same thing as you just said. You know, which is you know there aren't many opportunities for young Dutch conductors in in the Netherlands. Whereas you could you could argue that there is a great school for conducting, you know, Jack's school with um, yeah, you know, with uh, Ed Spaniard and and uh, the Hague is a wonderful school, and many great conductors have come from it. But I wonder why you feel that uh, as a as a native, as a local, that you know, that it's difficult for you to succeed, and you know, you need to go and um, abroad, the, yeah, yeah, abroad, yeah. yeah, yeah, because that's the Netherlands. The Netherlands are a small country, so to say. And uh, it's a little bit the the attitude here, okay, we might have uh, good people from here, but if they really survived in this business for 20 years abroad, then we might give them a chance in our own country. So that's how it works. And let's be honest, I mean, we don't have the system like in, in Germany where you can really start as a, if you uh, compare it to a kitchen where you can start as a salad help and don't have to start at the level of uh, chef de cuisine. Mm. And that's something in the Netherlands, there is actually your at an amateur uh, ensemble where you're preparing an operetta for one year and then you have these three performances in the local ta- town hall or it's really the professional level in, for, for example, the International Opera in Amsterdam, which is, I mean, it's not typical Dutch because it's international. Mm. Then you have the Reis Opera in Enschede still connected uh, to the professional uh, segment and Opera Zuid here in, in, in Maastricht situated. So if you're not lucky to have a chance at one of those three and of course the uh, the one in amsterdam will invite you at last because they're more international and they cannot take uh, too much risks of uh, uh, inviting young talent to lead a whole production i mean yes. with the international cast and a lot of money so then you're just your way goes to either uh, opera zuid or uh, the national reis opera the national travel uh, national travel company and of course, they are always looking for young talent. But you, if you come from conservatory, you know a lot which you shouldn't do, and a mm. few things you might do. And then you really have to start making these miles, these kilometers in the pit, and making the faults and making the good experiences. And that's something which can be offered more in the German system because that's I was right. lucky as well to be a pianist, so I could start as a Kapellmeister and repetitor at the same time. 
And that's how I got into the business and could make my flight hours, as I always say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, your flying hours, indeed. Yeah. Uh, we're going to come to the the much-talked-about Kapellmeister system in a little while. I want to ask you, whenever I discover a teacher's name that I don't know, I always try and find out what sort of teacher they were. Jan Stulen is the name of the guy who taught you yeah. in Maastricht. What was his style, his approach? I mean, you know, everybody knows now, especially if they listen to this podcast, how... Musin taught and how Panela teaches and how Hans Swarovski taught at the Vienna Hochschule. What was Jan Stuhlen's style? Was he a score study guy with a little technique or lots of technique and less than score study or a, or an overall 50-50? He was a unique combination of great baton skills, very clear, clean technique style, hmm. a lot of wisdom on instrumentation, on composers. Um, he was like a, a lexicon, like like a, a book you could open and you could ask something to him and he would always have an answer or a reference to kind of a source. He would know which editions there were. He was loved by orchestras because he was a, a conductor that was always clear in his uh, announcements of how he wanted something to be played. Mm. But he was a conductor as well. If there was just one rehearsal for a repertoire that took more than three hours, he would always be able to get it done in time so mm. if you would call him you would know okay this guy will do the job and in the end we'll have a concert uh, with a uh, quality at least of that level or maybe higher if there's more time or more preparation time for the musicians or whatever so mm. he was very reliable he was very skilled he was very informed but he was not a big showman so to say and he was not a guy that would sell himself everywhere regardless what his quality was the last day so he was very honest, which brought mm. him a lot of credit. And at a certain point, it got him a lot of problems as well. Yeah, and That's something which I absolutely appreciated. It was, he as a teacher was, what you see is what you get. He was not a teacher that would say, you have to do this. But he was, he you kind of came into the conservatory and he said, well, you paid money to receive lessons. You're kind of like a customer. I can teach you as much as I know, I like to transfer everything, but you are the one who has to work. You yeah. are the one who has to be uh, impatient to learn this. You are the one who has to work on his skills. And we offer you everything here, except maybe for a regular weekly contact with the orchestra. But the rest is all there. We had two fine pianists. We had a great class. He was a very skilled uh, guy who was had a great mixture of still being in the profession and being asked regularly by several orchestras abroad and, and on, in, in the Netherlands as well. And he, when he was there, he was teaching at, at a full 100% and would try to get the best out of every student on his level. Mm. So, yeah, very, yeah, always busy and always for the music. And besides that, he was a very nice guy to, to be with just, and we, we had a lot of laughs together. And in the end, we had always very famous end of the season uh, uh, parties together. So the last mm. lesson was always three hours of lesson for everybody. And then we would some somewhere disappear near Maastricht with a lot of wine and beautiful food and colleagues and, and, and friends. And yeah, so there was the, the whole aspect of being, yeah, very busy with you with the, the business and with your profession, but don't forget to live as well. That was something yeah. that he taught us. And uh, yeah, I can just speak very positive about uh, Jan because he was an inspiration to all of us. He sounds like the sort of person I would get on with because some of the things you just said ring true with my ideas about what I think a conductor should be. You know, having spent 22 years sitting in the city of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra playing the in the second violin section, I saw every type of conductor. And, you know, and what you've just said is very true in the fact that, you know, if you're just open and honest and sometimes, you know, you'll, ha you'll happily say to an orchestra, hey, I screwed up there or yeah. let me do that again for me, not for you, because yeah. I need to do it again. Yeah. Most orchestras appreciate that, but yeah. sometimes there are orchestras that don't. They look at you and go, "Well, you should know that." Well, you know, why am I doing it again for you? And they get very stuffy about it, and they they want that old school maestro with this yeah. cloak of invincibility around them. And if uh, they want that, they won't hire me again because exactly, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah. that's their choice, and I'm fine with that because yeah. now being in the profession for almost 25 years. I know what I can, I know what I cannot do. And I know that some things uh, I do is, is being like very much in one orchestra in one city. And you go to the next city with almost the, the same skills, the same repertoire, and they just don't like it. And then yeah. you have, I still try to have a, a nice week as much as possible. And I already know before the first concert, we won't come back here 
and they mm. won't see me again, and, which, <laughs> which is fine. But but that, that needs a kind of it needs a few years to come to that point and to find this rest in yourself. But those are all very important experiences that every conductor has to make, I think. Yeah, absolutely true. I mean, uh, I keep a spreadsheet of every concert I've ever conducted with every orchestra I've ever conducted, and it's now 833 concerts with 51 orchestras or something, even to the point where I know that I've been re-invited by 80% of those orchestras. Now, that's a high number. That's fantastic. Um, I always say if 50% doesn't dislike you, you're a fantastic conductor. But but yeah, <laughs> yeah. But the, the, point, the point is not to focus on the 20 or whatever the percentages of people who don't like you. It's to focus on the, the 80 or whatever the number is yeah. that do like you. Yeah. And to accept that, you know, when you go and make a debut, you know, I've got two debuts coming up after Christmas that, with orchestras I've never conducted before. There's a possibility that they won't like you. And frankly, you won't like them, you know, but but I, there's no point in trying to avoid that by being anything other than yourself. You've just got to be you. Michael. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Authenticity and be yeah. yourself and see what happens. Now, well, I mentioned it earlier on. Um, was it straight out of uh, Conservatory of, of Maastricht that you went and started in the much fabled German Kapellmeister system? To be honest, I had to uh, end my studies a little bit earlier to be able right. to come into this profession because I just, there was like, a, I was lucky to be able to conduct. Um, a concert in the Concertgebouw of the International Opera Studio in the Netherlands at mm. that time, when I was still studying in Maastricht. And uh, the, the the former director of that studio said, well, I will have Bernard Heiting or Ede Duart to conduct this concert because I need a Dutchman. And if they don't have time or don't want to do it, I'll try to find some guy or girl here in the Netherlands who is leading this concert as a conductor because it's the Netherlands Opera Studio, it's the Dutch Opera Studio, and let's try to help our talents or mm. our skilled people that have made a lot of career and name in the world. And I was lucky that uh, Bernard Heiting and Ede de Bard were not able to <laughs> conduct that concert. So he was looking around all the conservatories in the country and somehow uh, it was opera connected as well. And he somehow found out there is this guy in Maastricht, this young guy. He, he is somehow fond of opera and he has done a few productions on the conservatory. And he is, uh, well, they don't complain about him and they think it, this kind of works. So mm. then he came to see one of the performances which I was conducting in the conservatory a small opera production. He said, well, we're going to do this. I believe in you. So that's why I was lucky to conduct the um, uh, concert in the Concertgebouw. And at that time, there were like 150 intendanten in the mm -hmm. in the hall, which I didn't know. I was just do doing my music and working with the people that I was rehearsing that day. And then uh, after the concert, one of the intendanten came to me and he said, young man, we have a position for Zweite Kapellmeister, so to say the third conductor in the system of that house and i think you should apply that's mm. what he said to me i said oh well thank you great so, yeah let's exchange some some uh, that was at that time it was still phone numbers not mails <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah 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 and yeah well uh, a few days later i got a phone call and then we organized the rest and i just went there you know it was my uh my application for Zweite Kapellmeister at the Staatstheater Wiesbaden which is a huge opera house which still had a lot of repertoire at that time and I just thought, well, that's, this is what I want to do. I want to conduct right. opera. I want to conduct a lot of symphonic repertoire. And I might get a chance there. And I just went there. And there were six other guys uh, as well in this whole um, ceremony, so to say. Hmm. And in the end, the, the other six didn't have to move to Wiesbaden. And I had to move there. And mm. that it all went very quick. And there was a first round with only rehearsal. Then there was a round with uh, a performance of Lord Singh's Wiltschutz, seldom played piece nowadays. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, somehow they thought I did. Uh, I was the last worst, <laughs> so to say, <laughs> of the of the of the ones competing there. Yeah, and so I went back to Jan. I said, Jan, I have a problem. Uh, I, I they want me to start after some. We don't have a problem, he said. You're just going to finish your studies early. I'm very happy for you. That's the aim. Why I was training you for? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, we'll organize this. And I did. And then I did my exam uh, of the Master Conservatory with a self-organized orchestra in a manege in the middle of the Netherlands with Rossini's La Gazzetta, which is a very unknown. Uh, opera by Rossini and uh, an exam commission came there and uh, yeah I graduated very with a very high uh, 
point and everybody was happy and a few days later i had to start in beatsbaden and uh, it was it was directly diving into repertoire. I had a rerun yeah. of Romeo and Julia, the, the Prokofiev ballet. I had to do the rerun of Fledermaus. Uh, I had to do the uh, production of Hansel and Gretel, which was already on the on the on the seasons list. And there was one new production I was able to really start rehearsing from the beginning. That was Mozart's Don Giovanni, because our chief conductor at that time didn't like to do that. Mm. Or he didn't have time, I don't know. So I was having 10 premieres of great operatic or ballet works in that time, which was a great school for me. I just was con conducting and uh, studying and sleeping and playing the piano wherever possible to study the new roles with the singers for, for Giovanni and for the other reruns because it was an ensemble theater. So the one that was singing Gretel was your Celina as well and was your Adele in the Fledermaus and stuff like that. So it was kind of... Yeah, I came into a big family uh, yeah. from one day to to another, and yeah, it was just like like a like a speed uh, train, not <laughs> stopping, and yeah, <laughs> yeah, carrying on for for, for yeah. And... Well, the the first person I interviewed who'd been in the Kapellmeister system, um, uh, and dear listeners, I, I I will quote Kevin John Ed to say again, who said that he thought the system was brutal. Um, the amount of time that you spend playing the piano, conducting, learning, studying scores. Um, and I've said that to every Kapellmeister system person since, and they've all either nodded or said, yeah, brutal's a good word. Um, yeah, brutal uh, is a fantastic word, Michael, but yeah. it, this job sometimes can be brutal as well, and you have to invest yeah. hours, and that's what they call in Germany, von der Pike auf, which says from the really the bottom of the tree, Yeah, you have to start, and then it starts uh, mm. developing and growing. And of course, in the beginning, it doesn't look like a tree, but in the end, everybody says, oh, what a beautiful tree. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, so yeah. it needs this time of growth. It needs this time of development. And of course, maybe in the symphonic world, there is there are shortcuts possible. But I think for a, a conductor uh, of mainly operatic repertoire, this is a good school of being humble, staying humble to the profession, staying humble to the singers, because what they have to deliver is amazing staying humble to orchestras that have mm. to play repertoire uh, sometimes with not enough rehearsals you know mm, and mm. still giving their best and I, I i really believe in this that 90 percent of the orchestra really is all every night giving their best and sometimes things just uh, turn out better than the other day <laughs> and um moving on and learning from your your, your mistakes i think that's mm. the most important thing that everybody should do and of course there were nights that i said well i'm gonna stop and stop this profession because get my own bakery or a supermarket <laughs> yeah, or whatever yeah. but yeah. Uh, two days later you would just come out almost crying of the beauty that just had been presented to you so it's yeah you have a, a lot of amplitude in the emotions that you experience in this kapellmeister system mm. but to be honest i have had stagion productions in which the fifth performance was actually uh, on a level that i thought well we can hardly ask money for this because we have done, done much better, you know? So it's, yeah. it, no solution is the best, but I think it's good to have an, to have made this experience and to put everything into a relationship or in a relation of, of what, uh, yeah, what, what people are able to do. And, and, and yeah, um, I, I was, I, for myself, it was a very interesting experience. Well, I mean, the the there are two. One thing I'd like to add to what you just said was that you know, whilst it may well be considered brutal or any other synonym or a similar word, the point is you're at an age of your life where you've got the energy to take on all of that, and you are a sponge. You want to absorb all of the information from the singers, from the orchestra, from the intent, in, uh, from directors, from intendants. Uh, the other thing I wanted to add, and I also said this to Kevin, was. Uh, more often than not, when a, a name like Kevin's appears, when I got to hear about yourself and all of the other people I've interviewed on this podcast who went through the system, I've then looked them up on YouTube. And, and every single one of you is a really technically sorted conductor because of how much you've had to be clear because of the opera. And I'm, you know, and I said, no rehearsals at all, indeed, sometimes indeed. For, for and, a piece. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I said to Kevin, I said, what's funny is you see these names appear all of a sudden in the UK doing symphonic works. They're in their, I don't know, 30s, mid 30s or whatever. And you think, where's he been? And then you look up and go, ah, Kapellmeister. Then you look at them up on YouTube and go, oh, yeah, he's really good or she's really yeah. good. You know, and 
and and I I think you know if you have piano skills, which you know I don't, but for any young conductor, if you have piano skills to get into that system, I, I so many really sorted conductors come out of it. Really, it's a I mean, really, system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you survive, then you may uh, do yeah. this until the coffin or until you want to retire. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, obviously, being a Kapellmeister system conductor, you've spent a lot of time in. Opera theatres, you know, you, you've been uh, at Wuppertal, Oper Köln, uh, you were GMD or General Music Director at the Theater Koblenz for uh, nine, ten years, something like ten that. Ten years in yeah. Total, yeah. Um, which, you know, that takes an awful lot of time and energy of your life being a GMD, I would assume. Um, yeah, it, I was, the official title was Musikdirektor des Theaters, which is, I was responsible for the theater uh, there. Yeah. And we still had a colleague who was re mainly responsible for the symphonic uh, part, but still uh, he was doing some opera at, in the theater, and I was doing quite a, a few symphonic concerts as a guest conductor with the old orchestra that I was mm. conducting in the theater. Which is funny. That's the, how how the situation is there. Yeah, it takes a lot of time, Michael. Of course. But, uh, yeah, sorry, you wanted to ask me something. More. Well, no, it was basically going along the lines of, you know, when you're you're embroiled in, you know, running theatres and things like that, that, you know, you spend a lot of time in a city organising, you know, productions, speaking to directors, singers, whatever else. Mm -hmm. It's It's then how do you start picking up symphonic work outside, which is where, you know, I'm going to come along to... Uh, the VDF Funkas Orchestra, which is where we we both have a, a connection or where we met um, very soon. But how do you 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 know? I'm sure your agent is doing that for you. It's finding times to make debuts, at, you know, away from Koblenz and away from wherever you're you're working. Yeah, that that was in the time. I mean, I was lucky to be already in this period when I was Zweite Kapellmeister in Wiesbaden, way before I was chief conductor at mm. this theater in Koblenz. Um, that. Within the first year of Zweite Kapellmeister, I was being offered a, a salary by the intendant. And when yeah. we were having this discussion, I was saying, oh, well, that's not bad for Neto. And then it was a little silence on the side. And I said, no, my dear, this is brutal. Mm. And then I said, well, thank you for the offer, but I have to reflect on this. And then he called me three days later and I said, okay, I know that you probably cannot give me the money because your budget is limited, but I need somehow the possibility to be able to conduct outside the theater and to make my guest debuts at other orchestras. And so he yeah. quasi guaranteed to me that I would have some guaranteed gastia olaub, which means a, a guarantee uh, holidays for guesting, so mm. to say. And this made it possible that I was already, uh, that it was possible for me as a Zweite Kapellmeister to go co-guesting at other German orchestras, at other Dutch orchestras sometimes, or Swiss orchestras abroad, mm. which brought me this connection that I already could establish my symphonic or whatever other repertoire at other opera houses or orchestras. Yeah. And of course, this was all always attracted by the, the agency that I was working with, or sometimes it was just mouth-to-mouth -mouth, uh, commercial from, hey, this guy, you can, he, he is quite okay. So you can, we can have him for a next production. And of course, mm. orchestra members get around a lot as well, especially in the Rhein-Main Gebiet there. You see people from Frankfurt, from Mainz, from other operas. If the, the piece you're playing is only played at three opera houses and it's kind of a, a rare piece. Mm. And, and so they say, okay, well, we worked with this guy, or let's try this, uh, try him at, at another orchestra. So that's how it went in that time. So I was lucky to start this uh, guesting quite at, the, at an early stage as well. And finding time to prepare that, well, in that time, it was, to be honest, it was in the night or in the night. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I was lucky if I was able to sleep for six hours. But I mean, <laughs> then you're in your mid-twenties and, and somehow the mind and the body goes along with that and it supports it. And there is always this thrill of being uh able to do that and of course you don't you don't want to start there unprepared so there is this drive and this necessity to uh, be prepared at that point so somehow the system works works it out that you are prepared for the first rehearsal and uh, mm. it all works out Well, one of those orchestras you would have guessed it with, I'm sure, uh, I'm going to go on to WDR now, or Veda Air, is the Veda Air Funkhaus Orchestra, where you've been principal guest conductor since uh, 2018. Um, mm, yeah. 
And so the listener understands that orchestra and how far, far removed it is from, let's say, some of the opera work that you've done and probably the symphonic work that you've done. Their basic remit is to play any music that the Verdi Air Symphony Orchestra does not play. Yes, uh, so exactly it's, the description, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's any, literally anything and everything. And our discussion over Zoom was um, because I was about to go and conduct a, a concert of German hip-hop and rap music with a German hip-hop and rap artist, and you were going to run through the arrangements for me and for the orchestra, which sort of highlights the sort of music you end up conducting there. I've done video game music there. I've done, I'm going there soon to do a crossover with a trumpet soloist, uh, with recordings, and, and you know, it's, it, literally anything can come up in your way. You know, the first time I worked there, I, we recorded Let It Go from Frozen and then the Nino Rota Harp Concerto. You know, yeah. literally crazy stuff like that. I love the, that that what that brings to my musical life the fact that i can finish a concert and do brahms four here on a saturday get on a plane and fly to cologne and then do rap music on the monday yeah i'm assuming that's exactly why you like working there as well because it, it's such a a change of scene a change of pace uh, but they're such a good orchestra and they take it all so seriously so Indeed. Uh, yeah. yeah fantastic yeah it's, it's because I, I like this i mean nowadays we have this mindset of he's specialist or she is specialist for exactly this. if yeah. you're doing baroque you should call him if you're doing a, a, a contemporary music no only ask him and if you're doing a verdi and i think what i love is the anti-specialism which yes. jan taught us as well you're an all-round musician so be able to read jazz chords as well, know a little bit about swing timing, be able to put a Bach cantata or a, a Brandenburg concerto into a nice uh, shape, but be able to really get this sounding, what just came out of the printer or was just written uh, mm. 20 years ago. It didn't come out of the printer, it was written by hand still. So, uh, I mean, this this diversity or this range of uh, musical um, styles should be all within our package and of course you can deal sometimes somebody is more into this and somebody is more into that but you shouldn't refrain from doing it and that's exactly what the orchestra does as well they, they play uh yeah indeed from baroque to what just has been arranged or written mm -hmm. and they have a lot of knowledge and a, a, a big range of styles that they can apply immediately and that's something I really like. And that's what keeps the profession fresh. And so, yeah, I, that, that's just what I love because every week is different there. And it's not that if you if you work with them for 10 years that, you know, okay, this is the third time Brahms 4. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which can yeah, be yeah. thrilling as well with one of orchestra. Of course, yeah. But, uh, I mean, of course, you see, that's something. What the, what in disadvantage is that you may sometimes study repertoire for that, that you will never ever conduct anywhere else or at all. But Very true. But that's the only disadvantage I can say if you regard it in investment time. But the musical experience is always fantastic there. Mm. And uh, if the concert starts, this orchestra turns really into an, uh, like they call Rampensau in Germany, which is a trans, uh, translated uh, literally like a. a um, a scene pig, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which so, 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 so somebody who lives for the stage, really. Yeah, yeah. And that's uh, fantastic. So then, really, this energy goes up. They apply everything we talked about in the rehearsals and worked on, and then this extra layer comes on top as well, and with the energy and their skills. Yeah, it, regardless what the repertoire is, is every every concert with them is just fun, and mm. we're just playing with the material and then enjoying ourselves and, and a, enjoying a, the time. It's a wonderful term and I can't think of an English equivalent. For, but you're right, you know, the, the Rampenzau you mean. Yeah, the Rampenzau, yeah. 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 Because you know, you, everything is very professional and, and everything is very worked through in the rehearsals. The minute we go on stage and they're wearing their black uniforms with their magenta ties. <laughs> and I I can't think of any other orchestra really that I work with other than maybe one of the amateur orchestras in the UK where you get so much smiling from players and yeah. it's not false no they absolutely love they love you know, their job they love being yeah. there and they love yeah. to give this i mean it's 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 especially this energy transfer that you yeah. get there you put something into them you get it back and then mm. it, it just summons together and whoop it goes in out into the hall and uh Regardless if it's an opera uh, excerpt they like or a freshly uh, composed arrangement or just an accompaniment, uh, you know, it's 
Mm. It's all good music, or at least they, if it's not that, that great music, they try to make great music. They try to make it, yeah, yeah. And that's something I really appreciate in working with them. And and just so we put it out there, and I, I know my listeners probably know this, but I am like you. I love going and doing something that's a little bit off the wall. I've done Bollywood music. Um, I've done you know things with click track, as I said, gaming music, more than one concert, video gaming music. I love the differences and I love the challenges. Um, it's it, it's something that keeps me sort of fresh. And and the the point about there's a sort of a a flip to what you were talking about, where people are encouraged to be specialists, and it's nice not nice to be an anti-specialist. And I, I agree, I love that phrase. What that also stops people doing is the other thing that I know. I'm pretty sure that managers and agents do, which is pigeonholing. They put you in a pigeonhole, you know, which mm -hmm. uh, you know, that pigeonhole is marked opera, bark, uh, historically informed, yeah. or it's marked English music, uh, late romanticism, whatever it is, you know, and, and therefore once you're put in that pigeonhole, no, you apparently can't do anything else. You know, well, I'm, that's to me, that's very untrue. I love doing all sorts of music and I, I, I want to carry on doing it. You know, it's, it's yeah, important. Absolutely. It's important to me because I love music. I don't just love Shostakovich, Benjamin Britten, Mahler, and Walton. I love, you know, which conduct my probably my favorite composers. But I love all sorts of music. Yeah, indeed, I could I couldn't agree more about this, Michael. And maybe yeah. I was lucky to be a little bit in the opera system as well. But I was already in the, in the uh, symphony system as well. Yeah. Now now I'm at the VDR, which which is so unplaceable. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it is unplaceable. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, just remain as open and as broadly uh, in this range as, as possible. And that's something, uh, yeah, if I get a chance to keep it like that, then I feel most happy as a conductor, to be honest. Having heard that and knowing how you described Jan Stuhlen earlier on, you spent seven years between 07 and 2014 back at Maastricht in the same conservatoire, uh, lecturing or, or being a professor in orchestral conducting. So... When you came to teach, was Jan very much still an influence on you, or had you know you you added things from your time, your experiences in the profession, and and uh, you know what influences were came to bear upon you, and how yeah. you think you taught your students. Well, it was actually, uh, it was 2007 when I started, so I was at the age of 30, which I yeah. always thought is too young to be a professor for conducting. So I actually started this because they were checking uh, around for a new teacher, and somehow my name came up again. Of course, Jan suggested it because he would like to have somebody from his school carrying on this school. But they somehow try. Uh, to be honest, they, they looked around uh, to have. Uh, they had a lot of ideas and suggestions, but they somehow wanted to try this with me. And actually, I I first doubted it because I thought I'm way too young. I don't have time for this. But I did it out of the lot for Jan as well because he came to me. And, well, at least give it a go, please, and try. I mean, uh, I mean, you everybody would do that for his teacher if you if you have this good relationship with him. So, well, I, I just went there and I said, okay, but let's not, not agree more than a year. And then we'll see, we'll have a kind of, uh, uh, yeah, re-examine this year. And if they want to carry on and I want to carry on, then we'll resume this. And uh, in the end, I was able to stay there for seven years, but it gave me a lot of joy. And I was able to transfer a lot of the things that I've experienced in that time to my um, students. But it just took too much energy of me of still being in Koblenz as a, a music director, still being in Basel as a guest conductor, mainly for two uh, productions a year. And, you know, operatic uh, productions take a lot of time. So I didn't feel like I was able to invest enough in this uh, school in Maastricht. And it was hard for me uh, outside of the class, which I really like teaching the students and having the two pianists playing the arrangements, the orchestral arrangements for two pianos for them. We didn't have an orchestra class at that time or, or really an orchestra that we could work with. And I have been busy to try to create that within the seven years. And in the end, uh, the Institute didn't see the, the, the necessity of uh, supporting me in that. Let me put it like that. So at a certain time, I just had to give up because I couldn't teach it in the way I really always wanted it to. And of course, I was able in the meantime to try to get some cooperations with some German and Dutch professional orchestras to give them their flying hours uh, as well. So I was teaching 
there and trying to form this uh, orchestra connection as well with the class, which I didn't succeed in in this time. And then I was a little bit disappointed, to put it like that. And I yeah. saw all the time I was investing there and the traveling. And of course, the quality of students was was okay, and they were they really were worth to get an orchestra. But uh, when you don't succeed in seven years, you will not succeed in seventy years as well. I thought, and, <laughs> no. and, and there was a time just to say thank you for this experience, thank you for all the things that I was able to do here. But to be honest, I really don't have time for this anymore. And please try to find somebody else. And then I suggested a colleague and he did it for one year and then he had to leave again as well. And now it, it's differently organized and I actually don't have any connections anymore to them. But I hope it all works out fine for them and it's uh, being solved there meanwhile. It's it's the toughest thing of all, isn't it? When you're a student conductor, you know, you can take it to the, you know, the the most uh, derogatory comment about two pianos in in conducting classes, and that that would be, you know, and I've quoted it before on the podcast, Simon Rattle has quoted as saying, conducting two pianos is great if you want to learn how to conduct two pianos, um, <laughs> yeah, which, which is sort of true. Or 40 but, percussionists as well, I would add. But, yeah, but I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. but there are things you can learn with two pianos. It, yeah. it has to be said. And, you know, the, be the best class here in the UK, in Manchester, with Mark Heron. He uses two pianos, not all of the time. They mm -hmm. also have an orchestra, and that's where I'm heading towards. Mm -hmm. You know, and all of the great classes, be it Panelers, be it Moosin's, but way back in Leningrad, yes, they mm -hmm. had two pianos, but they also conducted orchestras. And that that is, that's where you get your flying hours, to use your term, and it's a brilliant term. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I, I go in once a semester or once a term to the Royal Birmingham Conservatory and work with the symphony orchestra there, and there are masters conductors there who shadow me and assist me, and I always try and give them time on the podium. Yeah, indeed. Because because it's important that they're stood in front of the best orchestra available in the conservatoire, even if it's ten or fifteen minutes, you know. But it's it's something, uh, and it's important that they get the chance to do that. But yeah, without an orchestra, it's very difficult to to know whether these people are actually conductors or not. That's without an way. orchestra. I mean, yeah. let's have a clarinetist say, "Well, I'm studying clarinet." But I just have my clarinet one time before Christmas and one time before the summer. <laughs> Indeed, what, yeah. yeah. What, what, I've uh, learned all the fingerings. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, and but if I, I receive my clarinet, I will know exactly what to do. I mean, if somebody yeah. would talk like this, you would just start laughing. Yeah, of course and, you would. Yeah. 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 And, and that's something, of course, we, we know that this amount of musicians cannot be there on a weekly basis. But if there is no guarantee of sometimes having some checkup moments, if people are apart from their musical skills, if they have psychology and the range to reach so many people. Yeah. That's something which can only be tested in in, in life procedure with living musicians of yes. that amount. Yeah, communicating with them and being yeah. the amateur psychologist that we need to be. We need to be able to feel the mood in the room. We need to know when we've said something that just by the facial gesture alone, you realise you've just pissed off the first trombone or the first yeah. trumpet. Or, you know, you, you can't do that with two pianos. You need no. those people in the room. So And if, if it was on purpose, then it probably has served your goal. And if, <laughs> yeah. if it wasn't, yeah. you, you apologise and you try to make music again and, and carry exactly. on. Exactly, exactly. Now, there is an 11th question, Enrico, before we get to the 10 questions, which <laughs> virtually every conductor has answered for me. And it's about score study. Um, when you come to study a score, do you still lean on the piano or do you do it with your inner ear at your desk? Uh, do oh, you start from big and go in small or start page one and work your way through? And for the big geeks of which I am one, are you a marker inner, a scribbler in your scores using red, blue, black, green marker pens, whatever? Or do you like to keep them virginally clean? Okay, let me, those were a lot of questions. Let me first, I, know. Uh, I try to apply all of the uh, sources that we have. I mean, of course, we have the dry reading. Yeah. We have the Partiturspiel, the score playing, as we know, on the piano. And to be honest, if it's a repertoire piece that uh, at least two or three people have uh, experienced before me in recording or in live sessions, I mean, we don't have to reinvent the wheel, but we just not only rely on the skills of the others. So yes. I first have a quick dry look at it. Then I go through it at the piano, but roughly. Yeah. Then I start listening because it generally in... I wouldn't say listen to high class orchestras, but then I start really try to, to to listen on purpose to orchestras of the middle section or the lower section so that I can really 
hear the problems that are already expe uh, expected from reading yes. if they are still there in performances or whatever so that I try to get a little bit more expertise and and so even if I go uh, stand there for the first time conducting this this piece that I have a little bit more of inside information on the piece just by um, using the experiences of my colleagues that have gone through this piece before as well. Absolutely. So uh, Pavel has said you, you'd be crazy not to listen to the greats having conducted the piece you're, you're learning. You know, you don't need you don't need to copy them, but you'd be crazy no. to ignore them. No, we're stubborn enough to have our own style. We will yeah. never copy anyone without uh, asking why are we doing this? Yeah. But, but uh, on the other hand, Michael, I would even rephrase it and try to say it's arrogant towards the orchestra not to use this information because mm. then you would uh, come to this rehearsal more uninformed, which I think nowadays is even less acceptable than it was 30 or 40 years ago uh when uh, we didn't have the sources yet available yeah. that easily for everyone mm. so i think you should have noticed of all the latest recordings on spotify and on youtube just because they're available and they're there and it's common com common for everybody to yeah. to, to uh, get a hold of that and and, and get the information out of that and yes, I do write a lot in my scores or write a lot. I used to use red and blue for dynamic and instrument entrances and stuff. But what I love to have in opera scores is that almost every soloistic, more appearing role gets its own color in neon. Yeah. So, oh, I right. have, yeah. yeah, yeah, the tenor is all the first tenor is always yellow, the soprano is always uh, in pink, the first baritone is always in green, so, so to say. And I have this system which gives me, even for the ensemble rehearsals, and in the night when I'm conducting, like in the in the repertoire system, you haven't seen the score for quite a long time. No. You just go through it in the morning again when you have the next performance. It helps you to get this, this overview. So yes, mm. I use normal pencil, red pencil, blue pencil, and all the neon colors I can find. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've never, well, I say never, I've done two operas in my two slash four operas in my career and uh when it came to opera yeah i used an awful lot more color than i ever did before um it's a good system that you know the the first tenor and the first baritone and and to stick with those colors um yeah it would have helped me probably a lot more when i did il tritico for instance you know yeah. that you could just use one color for the main tenor role and and you just yeah, open it's... the score and you see already without knowing exactly oh these there oh yeah let's do in this scene who's in there chuck 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 and then you mm -hmm. can give the uh, the answer to the studio lighter who's the guy uh, uh he who's um responsible for the planning of the next day for the bo for yeah. the orchestra stage rehearsal and if if just one aria is in for for the guy with the green color, you're asking yourself, do I need him or can I uh, switch this to the next rehearsal? Yeah, and this yeah. this is about people management and about using your sources and resources as well that you don't call in people just for ten minutes. That's what I always try to avoid, and that's what Jan taught us as well. Yeah. Uh, of course, if you if you want a tutti, of course, call them in, give them as much as possible to do. Of course, if if the trombone just have to play five minutes in all the program. Of course, you call them in, but you yes. call them in at ten o'clock, and then you rehearse this till ten fifteen, and they say, "Gentlemen, thank you very much." But the rest of the day's your own, indeed. Yeah, and yeah. and they appreciate it. I, you know, I I did a similar thing last week with the London Philharmonic Orchestra. We had a three-hour pre-rehearsal on Thursday for a morning concert on the Friday. No, I I, I went from big to small, so that yeah, the, and you know, you haven't got somebody sitting there who played in the first piece and then doesn't play again for two hours, and that person could be the chairman of the players committee you know if you mm -hmm. for instance you know if you, you happen to make a piccolo sit around for two hours or a harpist sit around for two hours and then you wonder why you're not invited back well maybe that was the re the reason being is the person who was in charge of re-invites re on the committee was the maybe. person you just made made sit there for two hours yeah. you know and if it, if, it, if there is a necessity to keep them wait at least communicate that to them sorry absolutely yeah. we now have a problem or sorry i miscalculated i just see yeah. that you're still in that and i have Made because of, then I work with colors as well. If I just have one piece with tuba and one with harp, of course I mark this extra so that yeah. I try to keep the order of the rehearsal uh, connected to the, their appearances, of course. But sometimes you can forget something, or you have different editions or different arrangements. Sometimes, yeah, of course, then it can happen. But they have a reason then, and they are more willingly to forgive you. But if you just have people sitting around, it it it, it resembles a little bit as well. Well, I don't care who you are what do you do a little bit for me as well if, if uh, yeah know. yeah it, it's it's about yeah how do you call it in 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 in, uh, 
in English. Uh, uh, um, let me see. Esteeming, uh, uh, value. Yeah, the, it's, that, yeah, it's, it's respecting them yeah, and respect and, for positions. Yeah. yeah, and giving them the value of you know of realizing what their role is, and yeah. you know, as if to say, look, I'm well aware. You know, I've even said it before. Look, I've had to come up with a rehearsal order, and a couple of you may be sitting around for a little while. Indeed, but yeah. but eventually, you know, I am basically going big to small, big and to eventually small, yeah. I will be able to say goodbye to you. But if you if you just bear with me, there's a reason why I'm doing it this way. But mm -hmm. I am well aware that you're only in three pieces of the eleven, and you'll yeah. be gone soon enough. You know, yeah. and um, most human beings and musicians will look at you and go, well, "That's fair enough. At least he's thought mm -hmm. about me." Yeah, and, yeah it's he's realised that we're there and that we're not involved in yeah. everything. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's an approach I love, and I'm really pleased I found somebody else who has the same approach. That's great. Are you a young conductor, thirsty for knowledge and wanting to discover more about the conducting world? Then my Patreon page is there for you. I'm constantly posting new content there based on my experiences as a conductor and an ex-orchestral player. And I offer you the chance to ask me any question, any time of the day. For instance, I posted an article just last week tackling the subject of agents and how to get one. You will gain access to interviews, video posts, tour diaries, articles and much more. If you pay for the whole year, then you will gain a 10% discount. And if you are a student, contact me directly and there will be a further discount. All of this can be found at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. And from just £5 a month, you can gain access to this ever-growing resource on conductors and conducting. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Enrico Delembois. Enrico, it's 10 questions time. And I always start with, what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? What I love is the sound of the coffee machine in the morning giving me my first espresso or lungo. Mm. What I hate is the noise of a police car behind me when I've speeded again. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, uh, I, I haven't. Uh, how do I put this? Um, <laughs> I like to drive quite quickly, uh, and I have yet to be pulled over by a, a, a policeman. I have been caught by camera, though. I will admit that, dear listener. But I've never been caught by a policeman, so maybe that's the sound I will reserve judgment on. And for the one day it may happen, coffee machine, absolutely. Yeah, it's the first thing i do every morning get up go downstairs make a coffee um, brilliant answer number three if you had 24 hours free what would you spend it doing i would go to the sauna or to the swimming pool and do wellness because that's one of the most regenerating actions i can do within a stressful period of a new production and i really love having this really big heat and then the cold again and it yeah it feels a little bit like a renascimento like a rebirth yeah, yeah. Uh, are you a jogger or uh, is you're more of a swimmer and a? I'm more of a swimmer and more of a cycler. We, I, right. I live in the hilly part of the Netherlands. You wouldn't believe, so I have a, <laughs> uh, I have I'll, a race bike. I'll need to Google that. I don't know where that is. <laughs> <laughs> the deep south. Right. But no, it's, it's it's so I like to get on the bike. I'm not more. I'm not a jogger. I'm not a runner. So yeah, yeah. I'm a, I walk when I when I have a day off. You know, in places like you know when when I go to. Uh, Cologne again in January and, and early February for, with Vedier. I've got a few couple of days off, and I'll, I'll go for a long walk along the river. You know, yeah, next um, to the Rhine is lovely. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I find that I would imagine it's the same with you in the in the sauna or in the in the swimming pool. You know, it gives you time to think. Um, yeah, potentially about the music you've been doing and what's ahead of you, and you know, just gives you time to empty the brain and and rethink yeah. and not and de-stress. And yeah, it's yeah. important to do that. Yeah, a reset, no. so to say. Yeah, exactly. Number four, who would be your favorite conductors or conductor of yesteryear? Um, well, one conductor that I've always admired within the German system was Wolfgang Sawallisch, because he was a great pianist. He grew up in this Kapellmeister tradition, but he was a phenomenal conductor of this great German romantic repertoire mm. and a very fine accompanist and very um, respectful towards his singer and towards the orchestra. So he was a connector and 
somebody who knew a lot, who, who knew that he knew a lot as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Always, uh, you know, uh, so he was from the Alte Garde, from so from the from the old. Uh, the old guard, yeah, old, old generation, school. old yeah, school, yeah, old guard yeah. of, the, of, of the conductors, but a, a gentleman, you know, really a bonhomme, and that's somebody rare. I really see him as a kind of a example for me. Well, into 120 episodes of this podcast, and I've asked that question 100, well over 120 times, and his name has never come up. And he was a true great conductor. Um, I mean, it goes to show that, you know, there are many, many great conductors. But first time he's come up, and thank you for mentioning his name. Um, really good choice. Now, number five is a question that historically some people have found harder to answer. Sometimes they've been repertoire specific. Sometimes they've just dodged it completely. Or, as I famously repeat, one person actually refused to answer it. And oh. the question is... Who would be your favorite current conductor or conductors? Well, to be honest, from the conductors that are still active nowadays, and I've seen myself and having experienced them, having a lot of uh, variety and this range of, of repertoire, uh, I think one of the most inspiring conductors and uh, very friendly and active conductors that I've seen was Yannick Nizet-Seguin when I mm. saw him at Rotterdam. And... He's always going for the moment, either if it's opera or if it's a symphony or whatever. And he's very inspiring and very friendly to the orchestra, but still urging them on. He's not one mm. of those guys who is too friendly. He's one of the guys that you really believe when he is uh, at, at the desk and he you have the uh, idea that he's enjoying this profession. And I think that's a turn in our profession. You know, when you look at the old risers, it always looks like a burden to be in that position sometimes <laughs> if you're yeah. working. And maybe he's sometimes a little bit too happy and too uh, enthusiastic about this little chord in, in the orchestra happening, but at least he's living the profession, he's experiencing the music, and I think it's always inspiring. Mm. Well, I played for him before I retired in 2014. I played for him uh, probably in, in the last three or four years of my violin playing career, and I agree with that, you know, that there is an enthusiasm there, a natural enthusiasm for the mm -hmm. music and for music making. Yeah. To the point where, you know, already at that stage, I had a conducting career and, you know, I was about to retire as a violinist and go freelance as a conductor, which means I had very definite views on interpretation and on balance and on things. Mm -hmm. And there were many times I completely disagreed with yeah. what he was saying. But his infectious enthusiasm and love of the music and the process and the music making and the people he was working with made me want to play you want that, to that, play for him yeah, and that's something yeah. which i think uh, is one of the most important things because if i go as in, into the auditorium as as in the audience as well as a listener i can have heard interpretations that i really would not never do like that but i can mm. get really enthusiastic because they match to the personality and to the musicality of the one transferring this to the orchestra Absolutely. and i've had the same experience as well yeah. conductors choosing almost the same tempi having almost the same dynamical retouche and stuff like that and you just think well this is boring please yeah. do something yeah. else so it, it, it really has to do it, it, it is connected with the people uh urging this on and, and transferring that at the moment that's a very important yeah a great experience because if it's if it's credible and if it's authentic to the one that is doing that at that moment then it's a lovely performance i think number six what is the hardest work you have ever conducted the hardest work i've ever conducted i don't know if it really is the hardest work but it was a hard work under very hard circumstances mm -hmm. and that was Wozzeck by alban berg after yes. having not been played for one month within the repertoire system and me jumping in as a zweite kapellmeister for our game day our chief conductor and it's, it's only 90 minutes, but in these 90 minutes, I became 90 years older. <laughs> I, I felt like that within that night. And uh, to be honest, I, I sweated a lot. And uh, it, it took me two days before and two days afterwards to get down from this experience. But after this, I felt like a hero because I survived. And we just had two very interesting moments, let's put it like that, in yeah, the whole, yeah. whole piece. And the rest actually went very fine and that was because everybody shit his pants as well to put yeah of course yeah, yeah yeah but uh yeah that was very thrilling and very demanding and yeah i think that was one of the most yeah hardest and thrilling uh, moments in my profession as well because it's not good for your heart to experience that every three months because then you would die before you're 30 i think mm -hmm. but 
it it was an experience that I really look back in a way of yeah this was quite awesome that we all survived and yeah it was it, it's it's complicated enough that things could have gone more wrong and we yeah. would have to abort the mission completely. <laughs> well, the analogy I I like to use is you know like it's like you've you've gone and sat in a car where all the controls are around the wrong way and you've got a set time to get from A to B. What happened was you probably you know bang the wing mirrors uh you <laughs> yeah. maybe drove up onto the pavement a couple of times yeah, but what indeed. you didn't do was crash the car yeah you know uh, the car that, went on we never yeah. stopped yeah yeah there was some damage and there were some people screaming on the back seat but we, yeah. at least you got there in the end absolutely yeah. and i still have a driver's license <laughs> <laughs> and you weren't pulled over by the, by the <laughs> police yeah they didn't have any time to get that... me <laughs> <laughs> brilliant answer absolutely wonderful answer <laughs> number seven when traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? To be honest, we already referred to the coffee machine. If I'm driving by car, I really am that snobby to take my own coffee machine. You're not the first person to say coffee machine. In fact, somebody, and I cannot remember who it was, had one shipped out to Spain where they were doing an opera run for eight weeks, had one actually shipped out there so that they could have the, their coffee machine in their apartment for eight uh weeks. And I know one conductor, a colleague of mine, who is traveling a lot with, uh, not by car, but by planes and by uh, by by train or whatever thing. And he and when he comes to an orchestra regularly, he has a certain type of pillow that he sleeps best on. So mm. now he has bought in a few towns that he's coming, exact the same type of pillow, and they're just keeping it at the hotel for him. So whenever he comes there, this pillow is available for him. Well, he doesn't ship it, but it's yeah. everywhere, and the, the world is prepared for his own pillow, which I think is, is fantastic as well. That That's also been quite a popular answer, pillow, but I think a lot of people pack theirs. I don't know how they manage it. They must have huge suitcases. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, a coffee machine, uh, yeah, absolutely. It's so important that you're, you know, it's, it's also, a, you know, if you're going somewhere, it's good to feel comfortable first thing mm. in the morning and not feel under stress of trying to find a decent coffee. Indeed. Number eight. Anything you like uh, can be very serious, can be silly. You can make us all wear Dutch football kit or whatever you want. Um, what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Oh, the things I would change about being a conductor is uh, sometimes the traveling necessity in the night towards the next orchestra. Mm. Uh, that's something I really know is necessary because you cannot make 80 people come to you. You have to go to them. But uh, if sometimes this flexibility could be a little bit more, that orchestra could move into the night and you would just have the daytime to travel, that's something which sometimes has been killing for me and sometimes will be killing in the future. And you know that we stop at a time when no uh, public transport is available anymore. Mm. And we have to be there at a moment when public transport probably doesn't get you there anymore. So you have to drive through the night, just sleep two or three hours maximum, and then go to the next orchestra. That's sometimes I, I think I would like to change uh, for the for the background aspects of this profession. It's tough when you have a, a, you know, a very close end of one project start of the next project and you're either on a red eye or you're on you know a 515 flight out of somewhere and you know you only get two or three hours sleep or whatever it is i, I had a, a zoom chat a group zoom chat on my patreon page just yesterday and one of the people asked me you know why do conductors choose to have one orchestra in america and the other in south korea surely that doesn't make any sense at all i said well it's they've been offered the jobs there and and that's yeah. do they you know, choose I do mean... they choose no they don't they get the yeah uh, but there are there are things you know because we want to do the work. Sometimes we have to we we put put up with you know driving through the mm -hmm. night. You know I've done it across the UK. You know finished somewhere yeah. and done a five hour drive back to Birmingham because I knew I was on at ten o'clock the next morning. And you just yeah. have to do it. Yeah. The sensible thing to do would would be to say no to one of them. But you just don't, do you? You, you know you, you, you do. would miss this chance or this repertoire yeah. that you were always longing for, or this cooperation with the orchestra that you love. And absolutely it's like a relationship. You sometimes yeah. uh, give into something that the bigger result is better for everybody. Absolutely. Number nine, again, real or fantasy, whatever you want, um, could be something you wished you'd done. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I would love to be a pilot once in a plane. <laughs> All the way back to episode two, or the very first episode I released, Andrew Lytton, and dotted throughout, 
uh, Alpes Chohan. Of course, Daniel Harding, I said he couldn't answer that because he already is one. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I've had four or five pilots. Um, were you always, from a little boy, interested in flight and planes? Yes, because uh, I always said, if I cannot become a conductor, I want to become a pilot. Yeah. But then there was the thing about my uh, eyes because I'm a, a, a wear glasses, which yeah. already is problematic for the test. And then I found out you have to be better at physics than I was. So <laughs> it's the whole situation. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe maybe one day you can go up in one of these two seaters, and somebody can hand you the controls for uh, for five minutes and and live live your dream that way. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? And finally, Enrico, if the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Well, I'm lucky to have the possibility of not having to choose between the meal or the drinks. So I'm no, very no, happy no. about yeah. that. So I might have a very nice medium steak, but just a steak, mm. and a very nice, I think, yeah, let's have it like a Malbec. Oh, from a very nice Argentinian uh, cuvier, uh, but not just one glass. We would finish the bottle, I think, and then go towards the end of the world and <laughs> just wait in all tranquility for this moment to come. Over the course of the last hour or so, I've discovered that we have a very similar attitude towards conducting, about honesty, about a sort of practical approach. Um and we have a very similar ch uh, taste in food because I, I'm sure that was the answer I either gave in episode one, the taster episode, and maybe gave again in episode fifty, which was a steak <laughs> and a Malbec. So, really? Uh, oh, fantastic! Yeah, so I would be joining you very much, and and it's been an absolute joy chatting to you, as I knew it would be from when we chatted before on Zoom over over German hip hop and rap. And I hope one day very soon that we can be in Cologne together and, and we'll, we will go for a steak and a Malbec. And, and a Malbec. Indeed, my dear. That's yeah. something I'm looking forward to already now. Thank you very much, Enrico. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Michael. All the best. A mic on the podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with an American conductor who can count Leonard Bernstein, Michael Tilson Thomas and Sir Simon Rattle, among others, as being his teachers and mentors. He's possibly best known as being the Professor of Conducting at the University of Music and the Performing Arts in Vienna since 2004. But until then, bye-bye. <laughs>